0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to COVID and the Classroom, a podcast dedicated to getting kids back to school, putting parents in positions of power, and navigating the new world of education in the time of coronavirus. I'm your host, Mary Claire Amslam. I am so excited for today's episode. I'm going to be joined by two incredible mothers, Bethany Mandel. She is a homeschool mother of four children, which is an amazing feat. Um, I'm so excited to talk to her. She recently wrote an article for the New York Post called Remote Learning is a Disaster and Terrible for Children. It's important to point out that her children are not in traditional schools. Like I mentioned, she's homeschooling, but she's very fired up about what's going on with our public schools. So I'm very excited to be talking to her about that article that she wrote, as well as her experience as a homeschool mom. I'm also going to be joined by Jenny Clark, who is a mother of five children. And she is doing a pandemic pod uh, this fall. And we talked a little bit about pandemic pods in the last episode. So I'm so excited to hear, you know, from the horse's mouth, how that's going, why she chose a pandemic pod and why she is such a great advocate for school choice. So that'll be a little later in the episode. But first, let's get into today's headlines. The big story of the day is that the Trump administration announced they'll be forming a commission to promote patriotic education. According to McClatchy, D.C., President Trump on Thursday announced that he will be establishing a commission to promote patriotic education in the United States. He announced a plan called the 1776 Commission during a speech at the White House History Conference. It will encourage educators to teach our children about the miracle of an American history and make plans to honor the 250th anniversary of our founding, Trump said during the speech held on Constitution Day, which marks the anniversary of the adoption of the United States Constitution. Now, we should absolutely be fighting against this horrible trend of teaching our students to hate America. We're seeing this all over the country. We're seeing students leave our public education system angry at the country that they were born in. And we should certainly be fighting back against this. Now, the the name, the 1776 Commission, flies right in the face of the 1619 Project, which Trump also discussed during this speech, which is being adopted by schools all over the country. 3,500 schools have adopted the 1619 Project. Several large school districts have adopted it as well. And that is now their interpretation of United States history. It's problematic for a number of reasons, Uh, the most glaring of which is that there are blatant historical inaccuracies in the 1619 Project. At the Heritage Foundation, we've done a ton of great work debunking a lot of these inaccuracies, the most glaring of which is that the 1619 Project argues that the American Revolution was fought to preserve slavery. That's an argument that no serious historian makes. It's an argument that not only is there no evidence for, but there's a ton of counter evidence for it. So I encourage everyone to go to Heritage.org and look into the work that we've done on the 1619 Project. But the 1776 Commission is certainly echoing a fantastic message that we should be encouraging accurate historical teaching in our schools. We should not be teaching our students to hate America. On the contrary, we should be teaching our children about why this country is such an exceptional and fabulous place. But we should be wary about national standards. So the Obama administration set a case study for national standards. It's called the Common Core. Uh, Notice the left doesn't talk about Common Core very much anymore, because it's been an unmitigated disaster. I mean, Common Core has been an absolute failure. Parents hate it, teachers hate it, students hate it. It should be a a cautionary tale for national standards. So we definitely want to be wary of that. But I think that this commission can do some fantastic work in highlighting accurate historical teaching in our schools and fighting against uh, this horrible trend of teaching students to hate America. Now, the next where I want to dive into is just so funny. It's not often in education policy that we get A really funny story like this, but you might have heard about it. Princeton University is under investigation from the Department of Education. Uh, So Betsy DeVos called their bluff. According to Politico, the Trump administration has opened an investigation into Princeton University over the school president's recent statement that students there face, quote, systemic racism and that racism is embedded in the structure of the university. Education Department officials notified Princeton this week that they are examining whether the university's admitted racism means that it made materially false statements when it for years assured the public and the federal government that it doesn't discriminate based on race. At issue is the Princeton president's statement that Princeton is an inherently racist university and that they have systemic racism issues. And the Department of Education is coming along saying, well, that's interesting. That's funny, because we have laws saying that you can't do that. that that's just against the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You accept federal funds. So we're now going to open an investigation into whether or not these claims are true, which is so hilarious because it's now forcing Princeton to come say, well, we didn't mean it. When we said we were racist, we didn't actually mean racist. We were just saying it uh, to, to win points among our, our SJW professors. This trend of calling yourself racist when you don't mean it just to show how not racist you are. So just meaning the opposite of what you're saying it is so bizarre. It's this bizarre thing that has happened in 2020. And so was Princeton actually trying to admit some some horrible systemic racism in their university when the president issued this statement? Of course not. They would never have actually come out and said this if they truly felt that there was some sort of a deep-rooted issue in their university. It's worth noting that I don't believe, and we at the Heritage Foundation don't believe, that the education department should exist. And so a very powerful education department is certainly something to be wary about. This is probably better handled as a Department of Justice issue, since it is a civil rights case. But that being said, I think it's Absolutely hilarious that the Department of Education is now forcing Princeton to say, well, we didn't mean it when we called ourselves racist. Next story, we talked a little bit about this on the first episode, about what's happening in New York City public schools. Last episode, I talked about how there was a delayed opening for New York City public schools. And now I'm here to share with you that New York City public schools have delayed their reopening once again. U.S. News & World Report is reporting that in-person learning is delayed again in New York City due to major staffing shortages, Mayor Bill de Blasio, city education officials, and union leaders announced on Thursday, just three days before the country's largest school system was set to return students to the classroom. Schools that serve kids in kindergarten through grade 5 and kindergarten through grade 8 will reopen for in-person learning on September 9th, while middle school and high schools will reopen October 4th. In the last episode we talked about the the deal that De Blasio made with the Teachers Union's to responsibly open New York City public schools. And this delayed opening is now due to teachers saying we're not showing up. So I'm not sure what happened with that deal. It's certainly discouraging to see teachers just blatantly say we're not going to come to school. And the same thing is happening in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Local news is reporting that students at some schools in Kenosha Unified School District will begin virtual classes starting Monday, September 22nd, due to a surge of employee absences. The announcement came in a statement from KUSD spokesperson late on Sunday. I put this story out on my Twitter saying that this is absolutely unbelievable. That late Sunday night before students were set to return to school on Monday, the school district was saying, sorry, we can't open because teachers are refusing to come into school. And a parent responded saying, you know, this is my child's school district. And we got the phone call past 10 o'clock at night. I don't know about you guys, but past 10 o'clock at night, I'm going to sleep. I'm going to sleep. I'm prepared for the next day. So imagine getting your call saying, oh, you've got to scramble to get for your kids the next day because schools aren't opening because teachers are refusing to come into school something has to be done clearly the efforts uh, made to try and spark deals between the the school districts The teachers' unions and the politicians like Bill de Blasio, they're not working out because teachers are still refusing to come into class. We need to be putting pressure on these teachers' unions, saying we need to come up with a plan to get kids back to school and stick to that plan so that parents aren't left without options. Last episode, the entire theme of the show was parents need options. And there's no situation where a parent is left with fewer options than when they believe their child is going to school the next day and then letting them know at 10 o'clock at night the night before for that the school not reopening because teachers are refusing to come into school. I am joined now by two mothers who made the bold and challenging decision to take their children's education into their own hands, Bethany Mandel and Jenny Clark. Uh, And I just realized now that between us, we have 10 kids. Uh, I'm the low contributor with just one. uh, So it's really a miracle that we've managed to to all sit down together and and have this conversation. So thank you both so much for taking the time uh, to join me on the podcast. Uh, Jenny Clark is the founder of the Love Your School, an organization that celebrates school choice options. She has five kids, uh, four of whom are on the Arizona Empowerment Scholarship ESA program. Uh, She has been a part of an education pod for three years that they call Cottage Schools, which meets in her home. And Bethany Mandel is a freelance writer and editor at ricochet.com and a homeschooling mother. She has four children, age six and under. Thank you both so much for joining me. Hey, thanks so much for having us. Thank you. So to start off, I would love to just get both of your first reactions about why you chose the education options for your children that you did. So Bethany, let's start with you. What went into your decision to become a homeschooling mom?
1: So we were sort of between a rock and a hard place as far as our school options um, when we were first considering what to do uh, with our oldest when we were living in New Jersey. Um, We are Orthodox Jewish, um, and so ninety nine percent of the people in our community send their kids to the day schools, um, which are private schools. Um, But we were not comfortable with them for a number of reasons. The the cost is was a massive factor. It's it's averages probably thirty thousand dollars per child per year. Uh yeah, and um the day is excessively long in part to give parents childcare to work jobs that <laughs> long enough hours to pay for the aforementioned thirty thousand dollar tuition, and um and and I, I felt like it was too um too test based too uh, classroom oriented not enough play not enough free time um, because people wanted to get their money's worth. And I understand that. But um, to me, I I didn't want to burn my kids out at five or six years old um, before they needed to really kind of be these adult members of society. Um, So we we had a couple options after we crossed off that from our list. Uh, the public schools, um, and we lived in a very, very left leaning leaning town, and we were not comfortable with what our children were going to be taught in in the public schools. And then there was a charter school in the town over that um, was actually a Hebrew charter school, which was cool because they they it was half the day in English and half the day in Hebrew. Uh, but it was a it was a really um, really difficult process to get in as a non-resident of that town. And we just didn't want to roll the dice. And and so I started following a lot of homeschool moms on, um, on Instagram and I sort of was just looking at their days and they were all universally Christian, but, um, just sort of seeing what, what, what is this experience like? And it looked really, uh, Beautiful and calm, and exactly what I envisioned for our family. And so, uh, I spent several years convincing my husband, and he let me try it. Um, And last year was kindergarten for us, and now he is the most vocal homeschool advocate you'll ever meet in your life. And it makes me laugh because you know it took me a year and a half to convince him to let us try, and now I don't know if he. (laughs) I mean, obviously, he would let me do whatever I want, but he he very strongly believes in in us continuing on this path. And as do I.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Wow. It's heartbreaking for me as an ed policy analyst to hear you say that you really didn't have options because of the, the situation that you were put in where either you choose a school that is in line with your religious faith. And I think that that gets lost so often in this conversation is that when you're a person of faith, sending your children to a school that is in line with those values is a very essential part mm-hmm. of living out that faith. Yeah. Um, and and it's forcing parents to make a decision between educating your children in the faith that you want to raise them in and having this astronomical cost associated with it. It's not a choice that we uh, should be asking parents to make, which transitions perfectly into Jenny. I would love to hear about your decisions, because your children are in the Arizona ESA program, which at the Heritage Foundation, we have been talking about for so long, why ESAs are such great options for families, why every family should have an ESA option. So tell us a little bit about that program, and about uh, what your experience has been in pod learning, or as you call it,
2: cottage schools. Yes, absolutely. So we started homeschooling about six years ago, probably sooner than we should have when our youngest was um, about five years old. And we learned after um, about a couple of years into home educating that one of our children had learning disabilities. And then we got a second child tested and we found out that two of our kids had learning disabilities. So we really at that point were kind of trying to decide, okay, you know, do we just pay for all of this, you know, out of pocket? Like this is so expensive and insurance doesn't cover some of these things. And thankfully in Arizona, we do have the Arizona Empowerment Scholarship Account Program. Um, And so we were able to, um, after briefly having our children in an online charter school, which was a great experience, um, we were able to qualify for the Arizona Empowerment Scholarship Account Program. Um, And so our first two children got onto that program. And then there is a, a guideline that allows subsequent Siblings, even if they don't have a learning disability, to also be on the program. So now we have four kids on an ESA. The youngest is is two years old. So, of course, she's not really doing anything but having fun these days. And we absolutely love the Arizona ESA program, it has allowed us to do tutoring and therapies. classes and programs, curriculum. It covers all of those amazing things that we need to educate our kids in the way that we want to, um, and in our case, in a home educating environment. So that's kind of us and kind of a little bit more about the Arizona ESA
0: just by terms of getting the the technical definitions out here for those who mm-hmm. might be listening who don't know too much about what an ESA is you know we've been talking a lot about how we should be funding individual families we should be funding students not necessarily systems yeah, always that should be the case, but especially during the pandemic when parents have even fewer options than they had before. So the great thing about an ESA is it takes the funds that the state was already spending on your child and gives it to parents like Jenny to customize their child's education through uh, as they see fit. And so using your unique knowledge as a parent, you can purchase, you know, Online classes, textbooks, you can use it for private school tuition, you can really just customize it however you want using funds that were already being spent on your child's education. So I think that it's so fantastic that that's been working out for your family. I want to ask, uh, and I don't even want to ask this question, but since we're talking about homeschooling, it has to be asked because it's the number one pushback <laughs> that you hear. And you guys probably know what I'm going to ask. It's the number one thing that people say is how How do you socialize your kids? Aren't your kids going to be completely isolated at home? Aren't <laughs> they going to be like total, like homeschool jungle freaks? Like, How do you make sure that your kids uh, play with other kids? I hate this question because I just think it's so ridiculous that the only incentive that kids have to make friends as if they're forced into a classroom together. But what do you say to people who say, you know, how do you, on earth do you socialize your children?
1: So um, this is my favorite question to answer because I answer it every day. So I was late to this podcast because we were at the playground with three other homeschooling families uh, and my kids did not want to leave. <laughs> um, we yesterday spent three and a half hours in the woods with seven other homeschooling families. Um Uh, today's Thursday tomorrow. My kids are like every single tonight they're doing a gymnastics class. Like every single day we're doing something with other families and the push, the sort of the way that I turn the tables on this question is I socialize my children in the way that I deem appropriate. And I was not a child that I want my children to be friends with. And I remember telling my my friends in second grade things that are not second grade or appropriate. And their parents had no way of knowing what I was telling their children and what I was bringing from home. Their parents had no way of refuting what I was saying or um, sort of injecting their own sense of morality or moral compass into what I was saying. Um, I corrupted the minds, and I apologize to all of these children, of a lot of the my classmates. Um, and it was because I had a not great family situation. And my children have a selected group of friends who do not do that. And when I decide I don't like a child, my children don't play with them. And I see and I hear everything. And if I don't like a conversation, I can change The conversation, or I can separate the children. Um, There's so much conversation in our society about bullying, about the loss of innocence, about the introduction of porn and sexuality way too early and way too young. And it's just getting earlier and younger, especially when kids bring cell phones to school and sneak them in. And it's strange to me that homeschoolers get this question without the understanding that. We don't have this injected into our family culture from outside influences, and it has made my children uh, sweeter. It has made them more innocent. It has extended their innocence longer than most children have these days. And I view the lack, but I don't see it as a lack. I see it as, as a more directed form of socialization as a massive feature and not a bug of homeschooling.
0: I'm so happy you touched on the early sexualization of children that happens in schools. That's for me as a parent, that's something that I'm so terrified about and we Mm -hmm. don't talk enough about a lot of the negative socialization that happens to kids when, when they go to school. So no, absolutely. Jenny, do you get any pushback on this when you talk about your kids uh, schooling situation?
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think when you come from a family where you have public educators in your family and you know, you, I was publicly educated Um, when we first, you know, talked about wanting to homeschool, you know, it was very foreign to a lot of people that I was close to a lot of, um, my family, but I think over the years, that's the neat thing about even people that are concerned or kind of skeptical, they get to see your children. They get to see the values that you've Mm -hmm. instilled in them, how you have, you know, kind of like Bethany said, been able to, um, allow them to have a childhood and be innocent and grow up you know, kind of in the ways that they should grow up. I sometimes look at some of my kids and think, gosh, like, is he, you know, is that, is that child acting immature? And then I I stop and go, no, he's acting exactly like a nine-year-old should act Who. Doesn't have a cell phone. Who hasn't been exposed to some of these things that tragically other children have been exposed to? And so I'm even reminded how quickly I grew up, also, and the things that I knew at certain ages, having grown up in the public school system. Um, that thankfully my own children haven't been exposed to. But I will say, like we do, get to connect with our kids and have the conversations that we want to have with them when we want to have with them. But one benefit of homeschooling is that. The kids are very exposed to other kids of different ages. So from a social perspective, I think, you know, my kids are awesome. They can talk to young kids and they can talk to adults. But we're we are out a lot doing all sorts of social things. Like Bethany mentioned. So there is a lot of conversation that we have uh, you know, about the culture, about different things happening politically, because we are out in the world. And quite frankly, they see that also, and they're getting exposed to that. But the difference is that I'm there, right? Like I'm there to walk through, you know, these very difficult conversations about some pretty significant, you know, moral issues that they've been exposed to. And I can say, Hey, let's talk about what you just saw, you know, at the Starbucks or like, let's talk about what you just saw at the park. Um, and I can guide them through those conversations.
0: Yeah. And we're hearing more and more stories now about uh, schools who are doing remote learning and teachers are saying, you know, you as a parent, you shouldn't really be listening in, you know, this is a private (laughs) conversation between me and your child. And, and, you know, you're going to get in the way of of this, you know, indoctrination work that I have planned for them. I mean, it's so not only, you know, sending your kids to school, do you like, you know, like Bethany mentioned, you have no idea, you know, who they're talking to, who they're being exposed to. But then also, you have no idea what the teachers are saying to your kids. And that might, you know, Really fly in the face of your values. So
1: my um, my favorite thing to do nowadays is to think about um, what would I think if someone had told me this six months ago, and if someone had told me that there were adults telling children to get on a computer and don't let their parents hear what they were saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you imagine the red flags that that would have sent up? Oh, I was talking and, to
0: my husband about this. He's like, isn't yeah. that
1: exactly what predators do?
0: Yes. Like, don't yes. tell your parents.
1: Yeah. You know, mm. get, get online and hide what you're saying and what you're doing from your parents. And we'll talk every day for several hours a day. But don't let your parents know. If you had told a parent six months ago that someone was saying that to their child, they would have called the police. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. This is a
1: normalization. There's a lot of things in the last six months of that become normalized that are um, very bad.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And that, that's a perfect transition into the next thing I want to talk about, which is, Bethany, you wrote a really fantastic article for the New York Post called Remote Learning is a Disaster and Terrible for Children. And I love a good just like cut straight to the point title, like this is mm-hmm. a terrible disaster. Tell us a little bit
1: about that article and what what caused you to write it yeah so I mean I, I it's funny I sorry but I'll, I'll be honest with you what I was just doing while I, while we were chatting um a, a mom commented on Facebook and I, I was on Facebook while we're talking I'm terribly <laughs> sorry um, but she was she was saying you know my kid doesn't sit still and she doesn't listen and I said this is not developmentally appropriate yeah and I think mm-hmm. and and I'm so, I'm sorry to be that That person who I know you want to just complain and you want to vent, but it is not developmentally appropriate for your child to be sitting and paying attention to a screen for six hours a day. And I am extremely frustrated with the the prevalence of screens in our society for children in general. I mean, before COVID, you couldn't go to a supermarket and not see a child on their cell on a cell phone playing a game while their mom was shopping. Kids can't could not sit at a restaurant. They couldn't go through a supermarket. They could they can't do anything without sitting on a screen. And the data that we see for kids who are under the age of eight, how many hours a day that they spend on screens? Sometimes between three and five hours. And those are often kids who are in childcare as well. So basically, every waking moment, they're home with their families they're on a screen and the 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 science that we have on what that does to their developing brains is terrifying they they've done brain scans of kids who are watching screens and entire parts of their of their cortexes are just inactive and this is the time in their lives, and this is the only window of time in which those synapses are being formed. And if they are not formed, that will affect the rest. They'll, they'll affect their brain functioning for the rest of their life. And so, this is a thing that I've been very passionate about um, for many years now. And it's not to say that I'm a screen Nazi. We, we, my kids have everything in moderation, but now in in the age of COVID, we're. We've gone from in the last six months telling pa- families, limit your screen time, limit your screen time. Do not let your kids watch television. And now all of a sudden we're telling them, try as best you can to park your kindergartner in front of Zoom for six hours a day. And it is, and, and we're hearing reports uh, anecdotally and just in general of kids who are just crying and ca- crawling up into bo- balls and just, the, and, this is bad for their emotional and and, and educational development, but it's also creating such negative associations with learning that they will carry with them the rest of their lives. There's so much negative about distance learning on Zoom. And yet this is what parents are being forced to do by school districts. And it's their way or the highway. You either put your kid on six hours a day or you're on your own. And that is an incredibly unfair position to put parents in especially low income parents who never anticipated that they would be in this position 6 months ago or even 3 months ago they canceled school and a lot of parents around the country thought that they would go back in september and now they're now they're sort of saying oh well february maybe and and where i live locally it went from November. And then the conversation sort of shifted to January. And now they're kind of saying February. And we're at a point now in Montgomery County, Maryland, where we're looking at 11 straight months of kids not in a classroom. And a lot of kids are not, you're either logged in and frying your kid's brain, or there's a lot of kids who are not doing anything and they're just floating aimlessly because they have parents who are single parents or who are working whatever that cannot sit there and supervise distance learning because it's a, and it's an all hands on deck situation for yeah. parents on the distance learning
0: yeah no absolutely it, it it breaks your heart thinking like those that image of the kids just like curled up in a ball just not wanting to do it not wanting to just sit in front of a screen I, I think we're going to see some really terrible depression rates coming out of kids mm-hmm. who are having to we already think- deal with this yeah no and it, yeah.
1: and my it's not right my, my pediatrician has said that um because I, I spoke to him recently the number one thing that they're now dealing with they it, this used to be cold and f- cold and sniffles and strep season yeah and now he spends his entire day talking to kids who have mental health issues oh god mm. he, he does not he's not equipped yeah <laughs> he's he's the strep guy right? not, He can't sit there and he the the problem is they have no answers like yeah well, we know what kids need and it's not socializing on Zoom. It's being it's being in person mm-hmm. and um and it's we're we're really doing an incredible disservice to an entire generation.
0: Yeah, no, I know that as a country, we have, you know, a few different crises on our hands right now. But I really just wish that we treated this like the crisis that it is, that that putting kids in front of a screen and leaving parents without the options is just an unacceptable reality that, that we're putting on families. Um, so eventually, this virus it is going to go away, you know, God willing, sooner rather than later. But eventually, you know, through a vaccine or, you know, through herd immunity, whatever it is. Eventually, we're going to hopefully have some semblance of normalcy. What do you all think? And and I'll ask Jenny first. What do you think the long-term implications of the education system will be once this virus is is gone with?
2: Gosh, that's a really big question. But one of my hopes is that we will realize the need for families to have more options than what they currently have now. I mean, Bethany touched on so many of the extremely legitimate concerns that parents and educators in quite frankly society should have about you know these long extended periods of kids being on Zoom and then we're multiplying that times how many hours a day, how many days a week, how many months of the year for some of these school districts that are just you know deciding not to open. So my hope is that parents will kind of now more than ever realize the need and the value for school choice for educational freedom and they will start to demand it they will say this isn't working the school either needs to open because I'm in a situation where you know I work and my husband works and we need these options or if the local you know public school by me is not opening then we need to be able to get those funds and we need to be able to take them to a private school that is open or a micro school that is you know popped up in our community that's an option for our family, so that that's part of my hope is that we'll see states and we will see families starting to step step up uh, and, and demand these options for more school choice and for more directed funding directly to families.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's a lot of what I'm hoping too. That this is not a sustainable situation for American families, and um, and I hope that people start saying, you know, if if, if you, the public school system is not going to provide anything resembling an adequate education for my child, then we need to stand up and we need to do something about it. And I think this has really energized people about school choice. Mm-hmm. Um and and I, I hope that people take that those energy levels to the polls and um and to their I mean it's not just the president. It's it's their state and local officials as well. And and they need to put pressure on their school districts to um to uphold their constitutional responsibilities, which is to provide an education for children.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to see school choice become not just, you know, another issue that people consider when voting, it's becoming a very personal issue for a lot of families. So it'll be really interesting to see. And if the the history of ed policy in the United States shows us anything, it's that real change only happens when you have energetic parents who are involved and advocating on behalf of their children. And so I really do hope that we we'll see a lot more of that. Just to close out, uh, what advice would either of you give to parents who want to start looking into options outside of their public school system, either because they were dissatisfied before or they're, you know, left without options out during the pandemic. You know, what advice would you give to parents who want to get heart started on a thing like a pandemic pod or on things like homeschooling? Bethany, let's start with you.
1: So I think that I, I've been suggesting this to every single person who complains about distance learning um, who are already at home supervising their kids. And I say, what you are doing has, is requiring more time. It's more, uh, more frustration and there are fewer returns. And so if you are going to be home with your child anyway, supervising, which you have to be if they're under the age of, I don't know, say 12 or 13, um, pull them out and that send a and pull them out now because uh, then your your state can't give your your they can't get funding for your child and so that sends a message to your school district that you will even if you can't take your money and go elsewhere you can take your money at least and they they can pull that out of the school system and then talk to other homeschoolers. There's. A, a million Facebook groups. There's a million Instagram accounts. Um, I started a, a YouTube channel um, this summer with a homeschooling 101 conversation for parents because I was I was getting so many calls about this, um, and and just start investigating your options. But it doesn't have to be a it doesn't have to be a sprint. It's a marathon. And so don't feel like you have to do every single thing perfectly the moment you pull your kids out. Pull your kids out find an equilibrium, find a balance, find your parenting zone, and then slowly start adding in a read aloud. You can start that right from the beginning. Do read aloud several times a day. Look, Think about the philosophy of how you want your homeschool to look like, and just slowly add things as you feel are appropriate. Um, but t- give yourself grace. This is an extremely um, stressful time. And um, Lord knows the school district wasn't educating your child perfectly. You can do it better and you have to have faith in yourself that you can because it really can't get any worse than what they were doing. Um, so my, my suggestion to people is um, to just look into homeschooling and and consider the fact that the six hours that you were spending pulling your hair out in Zoom, you could have two hours instead of just reading out loud and, and playing um, much more relaxed and, and tailoring an education write to your child instead of um, on a screen with 20 other, 25 other kids?
2: Um, I think, well, in Arizona, like that's one of the reasons why we started Love Your School is so that families know what their school options are. That's like our whole mission and vision is celebrating school options and trying to reach every single family. You know, in Arizona, which is where we're located, um, so that they know what their options are. In, in Arizona, we are very blessed. We do have a lot of really incredible public district schools and also, um, some public charter schools. And so while, you know, the online Zoom kind of option clearly is not working for a large majority of families. For some families, it is working or only pieces of it aren't working. And so a lot of the advice I give to families when they kind of come to me, if they're sharing their situation, you know, is, okay, you don't you don't have to make the immediate jump if that's overwhelming you and if it doesn't work for your family structure to, let's say, moving to homeschool. But are there pieces of what you're doing right now that you can change, that you can work through and that you can change and that you can work with your district? Because you are the parent, you are in charge and you're in control. I was just talking to a close friend that I went to high school with at the laundry yesterday and we were talking about just that. I said, listen, if that particular class isn't working for your child online, because she works full-time at the laundromat, then you need to talk to the teacher and say, we're going to do this class and this class not on Zoom. And this is why. And this is why we have to do it. And and stand up as a parent and know what your rights are and tell the school what is and isn't working for you. But I'm also very, very sensitive because of my own children to those other families who have kids that have special needs and may not live in a state where they have an empowerment scholarship like we have access to, where they can you know, walk away from the services that they were getting at the school um, and then be able to go around and turn and get an ESA and use those funds for different therapies and tutors. So you have to really walk through, you know, with your school, what services was your child getting? Let's say, on the low end, speech therapy or reading therapy or different things like that? And are you going to be able to, with your own insurance or whatever, provide that on your own? Or is your school district, do they have a system set up, like in Arizona, some districts do, where you can still receive some of those services for your child at the school district, even if your child is not enrolled. So those are definitely things to think about. Um, And walk through. And, you know, Bethany mentioned also, Facebook is such a great place. Also, that's where we do so much of our connecting is through Facebook and helping parents walk through those questions. And of course, local Facebook groups are great because people usually know right in your own community. Yes, if you want to pull your child, you can. And here's what you need to do if you still need to receive those special education, uh, services, or here's what you need to do to apply for like in Arizona, we have tuition tax credits. Here's what you need to do to apply for tuition tax credit. So you can turn around and put your child in a private school, um, and so on and so forth. So really it's about finding your options. That's why we started love your school. But again, Facebook is such a great place and other social media platforms are such a great place to connect with other parents to find out what your options are.
0: That is such a great place to leave it. I want to thank you both so much for coming on
1: the podcast. If people want to keep up with you, where can they follow you? So I think Twitter is probably the best place. My name is Bethany Shondark, S-H-O-N-D-A-R-K, and at ricochet.com, where people can uh, join and have nice civil conversations about politics and culture and everything, everything in between.
2: And love your school. Our website is loveyourschool.org. We are also really active on Facebook. It's at loveyourschoolaz, and also on Instagram. Also love your Great!
0: Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on COVID in the Classroom. I look forward to bringing you more essential information for parents, educators, and students during this critical time. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app to receive a new episode every other Monday. If you enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with someone who might need it. We hope to see you next time.
1: COVID and the classroom is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation, sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.